live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. Have we gotten to this point where people wake up every morning looking for something to be offended about? I live in this place called the real world, and I understand what is going to happen. Her story is, I was trying to scare him away. At the same time, she shot him point blank in the face. Okay, that's not exactly a warning shot. The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. Coming up next, Squirrel. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Boy, lots of stuff going on. We'll continue to follow the developments in Washington, although right now there's going to be a lot of bloviating for the next couple days. We start off with a local story, though. Breaking news that I have been discussing over the course of the last couple weeks. And and I start off with this basic premise. What a novel thing. A state agency has decided to, wait for it, follow the law. Actually follow the law. How unique is that? All right, for those of you who've been following this story, um, the State Elections Commission just a few minutes ago, has ordered the two of the candidates running to replace Chris Abley. The primary is in mid-February. Um, two of the candidates running for county executive are going to be bounced from the ballot because they did not submit enough valid signatures. The two are going to be knocked off the ballot are former state senator Jim Sullivan and um, Glendale Mayor Brian Kennedy. And in, particularly in the case of Sullivan, I think a lot of people thought that he had a strong chance of being one of the two candidates to emerge from the primary way out there left wing um state senator chris larson is one of the candidates everybody figures he's going to emerge and then there's going to be somebody else a lot of people thought it might be jim sullivan but as it stands right now he is off the ballot now i've been tweeting i've been sending out tweets about this and and the bad guy at least in the view of some people but not me is um county supervisor and the board chairman theo lipscomb who is also running but he filed the challenges. Now, here, here's the story if you haven't been following this. And let me kind of ex- explain this as simply as I can. In order to get on the ballot, you need to turn in 2,000 valid signatures from people to nominate you. That's the prerequisite to getting on the ballot. Now, you are allowed to turn in up to 4,000 signatures. And most credible candidates who run for office, you turn in much closer to the maximum than you do the minimum because there's always some problem that can come along with, with signatures. I know there, maybe there's a technical flaw. Maybe, you know, um, somebody signs it and puts the wrong date, whatever. There, there's always things. So signatures always kind of get tossed off. So that's why you want to have a huge cushion. So if it's a race with 2,000 signatures, you probably want to turn in close to 4,000. And it's not tough to get signatures if you're a serious candidate. In Milwaukee County, if you as the candidate and a handful of your volunteers went out, hit a couple big events on one weekend or the next weekend, you could probably easily get three, 4,000 signatures. That's the way you do it. 
Well, in any event, that's apparently not the way that candidates do it anymore, and it's not the way that Jim Sullivan and Brian Kennedy chose to do it. Instead of getting signatures themselves, or at least a large number of signatures themselves, they farmed it out. They decided to let's hire the friend of a community organizer and let's pay this guy to go out and have people collect signatures for us. All right, that, that's that, maybe that's this this new thing where you have candidates who are lazy or they're trying to throw money at community organizers or whatever. But anyhow, that's what that's what Kennedy and that's what Sullivan do. Instead of collecting all their own signatures through themselves or their volunteers, they outsource it. They they hire these people. All right, that that's there's no problem with that. But here's the problem. Under the law, and the law is very clear, if you're circulating the nominating petitions for a candidate for office, you're not allowed to to circulate nominating petitions for another candidate for the same office. So if Gruen and I are both running for county executive, the same person can't circulate nominating petitions for both of us. All right. Well, what happens is, as the Sullivan campaign and the Kennedy campaign outsource this and funnel money to a community organizer, and they say, get us signatures. Well, the community organizers go out, and they hire some people who are circulating nominating petitions for multiple candidates for the same office. All right? So what happens on the law is extremely clear. If you are a circulator and you circulate petitions for multiple candidates for the same office the first petitions you get presumably according to date they're valid the ones you get afterwards are not valid the law is very very clear now you might say it's a stupid law why shouldn't you be able to circulate petitions for multiple candidates i'm not going to argue the merits of the law the law is very clear you, you know, you can only circulate a nominating petition for one candidate, and if you do it for multiple candidates, those subsequent signatures are not valid. So anyhow, Kennedy and Sullivan outsource this, and the whoever they hire to go out and circulate these things is circulating petitions for other candidates as well, so they turn in these petitions. Well, Lipscomb finds out about this, and he files a, a complaint. He says, look, the law is really clear. And it becomes important because if you look at the number of signatures that they turned in, um, Sullivan only turned in 2,450 signatures, only 450 more than the minimum. Remember, I was saying normally to be safe, you want to turn in close to 4,000. But the Sullivan campaign got, in my opinion, lazy and sloppy. They only collected 2,450 signatures, and they outsourced a chunk of this. All right. So that's the issue. You've only got a working margin of 450 signatures. Well, it turns out that about a thousand of the Sullivan signatures are invalid for various reasons, including the fact that um, one of the petitioners or multiple people who circulated the petitions had circulated petitions for other people. So the Elections Commission says, hey, you've got a 1,001 invalid signatures. You only turned in 2,450. That leaves you with a little bit less than 1,500 valid signatures. You need 2,000. And today, State Elections Commission said, boom, you're, you're off the ballot. You did not satisfy the requirements of the law. In the case of 
Brian Kennedy, he turned in 2,684 signatures. Again, I, why you wouldn't turn in 3,000, 3,500, 4,000 beyond me? He turns in 2,684, and the commission found that 844 of the Kennedy signatures were invalid. So that leaves him with 1,840 valid signatures. He comes up 160 short. Sullivan comes up over 500 short. But the bottom line is you need 2,000 valid signatures. So the State Elections Commission, following the law, has just ruled that both of these guys are off the ballot. Now, I've been saying this over the last couple of weeks since this, this whole issue came up. I, I don't I don't have a horse in this particular race. I don't live in Milwaukee County, you know, I it, it but I do feel strongly about the law having to be followed. And in this case, these candidates were lazy, they were sloppy, they decided to outsource this stuff without enough checks and balances and, and yeah, maybe they, they trusted some of these organizers. Like I say, my guess is there was this desire, hey, you know, we want we want to generate support some support for some of these community organizers, so let's give them some money, let's assign them a job. It's all valid, it's all legal, but this is what happens when you you do that, when you do this outsourcing. And a lot of people are, are saying, oh, that this is, this is terrible that Theo Lipscomb decided to, you know, blow the whistle on this. No, it's, it's not at, at all. I mean, he's a candidate who's running for office. He sees that two of the people also running for office screwed up big time. And the law, again, is very, very clear that what happens is when this happens and you circ- you have the same person circulating multiple signatures, the first ones they get are valid, the other ones aren't. Now, some people might think that that's harsh. Again, I, I take no position on the merits of the, the Sullivan candidacy or the Brian Kennedy candidacy. I just simply say the law is the law. And it does, again, reflect I guess how what kind of county executive you would be if you can't get your act together enough to make sure you have 2,000 valid signatures. And maybe this is a lesson moving forward to other candidates and other campaigns that maybe the lesson is do your own damn work. I mean, like I say, it's not hard. If you are a serious candidate in a county the size of Milwaukee County, you know, you should, with a couple volunteers, you hit a couple big events, you distribute these petitions to some of your friends, and, and you're going to get you're going to get three or 4,000 signatures easy. You're not going to be in this situation. So maybe this is this object lesson. You know, pay attention to the rules. Now, as it stands now, these guys are off the ballot. There is an appeal proceeding. What you can do is if they object to this, they can go to circuit court and they can appeal the issue to circuit court and they can try to convince some Milwaukee County judge to issue an injunction to leave them on the ballot. Don't know what my guess is they're going to do that. I don't know what judge they're going to get. I don't know whether the judge is going to decide to follow the law or not. But again, the law is very, very clear in this regard. Sullivan and Kennedy, it seems to me, screwed up big time. And now you know, they're, they're paying for it. But that's but that's appropriate. If you're not going to follow the law, you should expect certain consequences. And that's the breaking story. Again, some people are saying Theo Lipscomb's the bad guy. I don't. I just don't see that. They messed up. 
He called them on it. And finally, you have a state agency who's apparently looked at it and said, you know, we're going to follow the law here. Yeah, you, you screwed up. Sorry. Sorry we're bumping you for the ballot. But otherwise, it makes a joke out of all these other rules. So that's the breaking news. When we come back, if you say see something, if you say something, should you be sued if it turns out you're wrong? I will explain in just a moment. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I think if you see something and you say something, even if it turns out that you are wrong, I don't think you should be subject to lawsuits. A Wisconsin state legislator disagrees with me and has introduced a new law. Let me explain. The representative is a woman named Shalia. I want to say Sheila, but I think it's Shalia Stubbs. She is an African-American legislator, state representative elected from the Madison area. You may remember her story. She's running for office August of 2018, a few days before the primary. And her, her story... This was her story. She said, hey, I was out campaigning, and a caller called in. I was out campaigning. I'm in a car. I, I'm banging on doors. My mother and my, my child are, are in the car that's parked on the sidewalk. I'm knocking on doors. And this is what she says. There was a, a caller to the police called in and said I was going door to door selling drugs, and I had a lot of people in my car. Now, I'm quoting from what she said. I had my 8-year-old and my 70-year-old mom. Um, she says, an officer came over, didn't believe my mom. I had to show three levels of validation of identification, and my daughter had to witness this. This means I have to repair the relationship with law enforcement in my family. So she says, I, I get, I'm, I'm in this neighborhood, I'm campaigning, I'm going door to door, and somebody calls and says, hey, th- this woman is selling drugs. And of course, the undertone of this is she's african-american so this story gets all sort of attention now the facts are a little bit different because after this story got after the story got all the attention that it got what what happened is that they went back for example madison's isthmus newspaper went and actually pulled the 911 call because they were saying let, let what exactly did this particular caller say and apparently the caller who called 911 says there's a vehicle with a bunch of people in it that has been parked near their home for 30 minutes. The caller says, I think the occupants may be waiting for drug dealers to come home. So the caller doesn't make any reference to the woman knocking on doors or the woman selling drugs. As it turns out, what had happened is this, this the house that the car is parked in front of was what they would call a known drug house. People had been calling on multiple occasions. The caller says it's active all night long, and when drug dealers aren't home, cars just park up and down the street waiting for them to get home. It's pretty active. So the caller who actually makes this call to 911 isn't saying, hey, there's a black woman going door to door selling drugs. It's saying, hey, there's this car that's been parked for a period of time 
outside this drug house. This is what happens. People deal drugs out of this. And, you know, we've got cars that park there waiting for the dealers to come home. And and then, you know, the call goes on and and that's that's what they're they're saying. The guy said the guy, the caller is complaining, saying, you know, we've had these problems before. And can you have somebody that checks it out? And the 911 operator says, yeah, we're going to send another officer over there. Um, hopefully they can get the car moving and, you know, they, they thank, they thank the guy for this. And as it turns out, this was a house that there had been all sorts of drug activity at. Now, apparently the particular location that the car was parked in front of the the drug dealers had moved out a couple days before. But, you know, the, the, the caller doesn't know that. So this story about, well, they, they called to report me because I was African-American, that it's, I, I think it might be over-dramatized. And it just so happens that the state representative, she parks, you know, the car, and yes, it's got her mother in it, yes, it's got the child in it, but it's in front of this known drug house, and so you have this caller that calls in and, and reports it. And yeah, they, they send cops over. Cops are answering this and checking it out. And then what happens is they come out, they determine this isn't a drug deal waiting to happen. It's a woman who's running for office, and they, they, the cops leave. Nobody's alleging that the cops were doing anything inappropriate other than answering the call that the person made. All right, so now this state representative, Shalia Stubbs, has introduced legislation which would, well, she says it would draw attention to racially motivated police calls or profiling by proxy. Um, the, the, the phrase that they use is race out of place police stops. In other words, hey, they called the cops on somebody because I was a person of color in the wrong place. Here's the key. The bill would allow an individual to sue, to sue a caller who unnecessarily summons a police officer. You could sue the caller for up to $250. A civil action would only be possible if the caller had, quote unquote, intended to unlawfully discriminate against the individual to cause them to feel harassed, humiliated or embarrassed or to damage their reputation or business interests and more. So that's what you'd have to show to recover. But of course, you know, you can sue anybody for anything. So this would give a cause of action. If you are, for example, you believe that somebody, you're in a place, you're not doing anything wrong, but somebody has seen something and said something, the person to whom that call was made about could now file a lawsuit alleging that, gee, the person that made this call was trying to discriminate against me. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We tell people continually, If you see something, say something. I think if this law were passed, it would chill, chill people from feeling comfortable making that particular call because I think people would be afraid. Oh, my gosh, I know I have no intention, evil intention here. I see something suspicious. But if I make this call now and it turns out that there's nothing wrong here, now they can turn around and they can sue me. Is this good public policy? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think not. We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So 
So, very glad to have you with us. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this the end, if this were to become law, of see something, say something? Let's talk to Solana in Milwaukee. You're first. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Good afternoon. What do you think? Um, yeah. Well, I think I, I can get what you're saying on what, what that could mean for see something, say something. But there's this is a trend that's happening around the country, whereas people are being called on for suspicious activity, but it's usually informed by some kind of bias, even if the caller knows it or not. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I, I I get the, her bill is something that is not, it's not the first bill in the country. It's yep. something that's been going on because this is, is something that, that has been seen as needed because this is endangering a lot of people when you call them for something simple they're doing, like barbecuing, like doing doors, like, and I, I do campaigns and everything. And, and that's, that's really scary. I mean, a lot of times, I don't send certain people to certain neighborhoods because I'm 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 scared that something like this can happen. But um, if you but were to can, pass this law, yes, yeah, I mean, if you were to pass this law, and again, I, don't, I mean, look, I, I I don't care if there's suspicious activity in, for example, in my neighborhood. I don't I don't care whether it's you know a, a person of color or or a group of you know white teenagers or whatever. I I don't care. I thought we're told that we're we're supposed to. You know, call the police and let them come check it out. And I guess my concern is, if now it turns out that it's legitimate, that it's that it's not a bunch of kids driving around looking for unoccupied houses to break into. It's I I, I don't know. You know, they're friends looking for some address that they can't find. I, I mean, if I now know that I can be sued if it turns out to be wrong, who's going to make that call anymore? I, I think that. If you really think it's something that's really suspicious, I think people are still going to make that call. But the determination is going to come by the police and the DA rather if your call was really just uninformed. Like this particular call seems to be has some merit to it because yeah. of the history of that area. But there's a lot of calls that don't. Well, and, right? and, and I'm and, sure you're and, right. And, but I, and, she has to re- and she has to represent all her people and think about all the different situations that that could have ended up being. But I guess as, as a in in the real world. Who's going to make that call moving forward if you, you know, you, you see something that lo- looks suspicious to you? And, and, and again, I, it, maybe it's some African-American kids, maybe it's some Hispanic kids, maybe it's some white kids, what, whatever, that, that it, you think it's suspicious. Might be nothing, but you think it's suspicious. It, you, if you make the call and it turns out that it is nothing, you know, and you know now that you, you could be sued and you could be in court having to explain what your motive was – for a, a, a DA or a, a city attorney or some other attorney, you know, you have to explain your your motive, and maybe people believe you, and maybe you don't. I just don't think people are going to make that call anymore. I think if you really are are thinking something's really suspicious, but I think it will you will double think. You know, like hmm. are they just sitting in a car? Could I go and can I go and see what's going on? Like, could I just watch the area? Other than just saying, looking at them, scanning the one area once and being like, oh, my God, that's suspicious, you know, like, I think people are going to just think double on it. But I don't think people are not going to to um, not call when their air, when their neighborhood, it might be in danger, when their family could be in danger. I don't think that that's that's the case. I can get that 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 it might 
be in people's back of people's minds. Right. But I think people need to double think before they call police, especially on people of color in the country that we're in. You know, like there people have biases. Okay, but let, let me ask you: Let, let's, callers and police have biases. Everyone sure. has biases, and we do need to double think that. So now, in in, in this case, again, th- this particular case, I think might be a bad example of a need for this law because I think that the you know objectively it was he wasn't calling necessarily in her. He's calling on there, there's this drug house and there's this car that's parked out in, in front of that. But I guess, I mean, objectively, if you live, if you live in a high crime neighborhood, let, let's take that example. Don't you want your neighbors, if they see something that they think is funny, don't you want them making the call to the police and letting the police then then check it out? And if it turns out to be nothing, then then you send the people on the way. What's the downside of that? As long as the police are respectful when they come out and they you know and, and they they ask, hey, why are you sitting here? You know what what's the deal? I mean, I think that does it. It just kind of depends, right? Like if is some person walking down the street and you're saying oh, that person with a hoodie is looking suspicious, which happens in River West. Sure. You go in the River West group on Facebook sure. all the time. It, and they have a little bit of a crime thing over there. They'll call out people, and it'd be a regular black man walking down the street, yeah. and they'll call the police on them. That's a problem. No. Versus, you know, someone being in a car for a while, um, look like they're struggling right. through stuff. But it was a kid in the car. It was an old lady. <laughs> like, right. like, And if you watched the car for a while, you probably would have seen her go back to the car, grab some more lit, or move the car soon. Like, I think it's just a thing of, of double-thinking what you're thinking. Watch the situation instead of just jumping to conclusions that might have might be um, informed by your bias. Got it. Oh, thanks. Well, I, and look, I, I'm not I – mean, I didn't just fall off the turnip. I, I understand. I, I'm sure that there is some – some suspicions that are fueled by by the by race, okay, and I, and I I understand that, but I guess my the flip side of that is, if you now say every time you call the cops, if it turns out that you've reported something that you saw, but that it's it, it turns out that there, there's nothing to it, it, it's an innocent sort of explanation. Now what's happened is you leave yourself open to a lawsuit where somebody can make these allegations that, hey, they, they did this because of racial bias. And, and and maybe even if they're not ultimately able to collect, now you're going to have to hire a lawyer. Now you're going to have to be deposed. Now you're going to have to try to justify why it was that, that you did this. And I, I guess big picture, I got to believe that, that that's now going to have people saying, I'm just not going to make this call anymore. And again, m- maybe in our society, that that's where we are now. See something, say something gets trumped, no pun intended, by our concerns that, you know, somebody might be accused of engaging in racial profiling. I just don't think a law like this makes the community safer. Charlotte in Beaver Dam. Charlotte, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, my thoughts on it are these. For years, the police department and community services have tried to get the block watches installed. We have them. Thank goodness we do because we watch out for ourselves in our neighborhoods. I called in one time when I saw a car going up and down our street and parking for a while. Thank goodness I did because found out my neighbor was broken into two doors down. 
and there had been a rash of break-ins during the day. Now, a lot of these people who are Black Watch members are senior citizens. They don't have 250 bucks nor court costs to, to fight off something like this. And my last point is, if she's running to protect, for an office to protect her community, one, why didn't she know that there was a local drug house in that house in that area? And two, why didn't she have the understanding that people called in with a concern yeah. that it could have been a drug deal? Right. What's and, wrong with her? Right, right. And, well, and if you go and if you listen to the tape, like I say, the, the narrative was, oh, they called on because I, I'm 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 an African American woman and I'm black, banging on these doors. And then you go back and you listen to the nine one one tape, and and there's actually even no reference to her. The reference is, okay, this is this known drug house. People line up, they wait for the dealers to come home. There's this car that's been parked in front of this place for however long. And and I understand our first caller says, well, okay, maybe what should happen is you should go over and you should investigate and you should try to determine that. Well, average citizens aren't going to do that. Average citizens are just going to say, hey, there's this car that's been sitting in front of this drug house for however long. Can you come check it out? Don't don't we want the police to be checking that out and determining if there's something or, or nothing? No citizen should be putting their life at risk to go out and investigate a strange car. And secondly, why isn't she standing up and saying, look, people are watching out for each other in the area. Nobody profiled her. Nobody said anything about her race. She should be stepping up and saying, thank goodness there's somebody actively watching out for their neighbors. Well, that's a call. And I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. And look, and I understand. And I, again, I'm not naive. I'm I'm sure that in some people's minds, you know, you know, race plays a, a role in this. But but let's face it, any time, if this would become law, and I don't think it's going to become law, but any time, if this would become law, you know, any time you see people of color and you make that call, well, okay, you are leaving yourself open to now being publicly identified as, oh, you're, you're a racist, you get this lawsuit that you've unnecessarily discriminated against the person, and now you're going to be on, on record having to defend what your motives were in making this particular call and i just think the result of this is people aren't aren't going to make aren't going to make these calls and is is that really what we end up wanting jacqueline in kenosha hi jacqueline you're on wtmj hi jeff i hope you're well today i am well I'm and you're calling so- to let you know. okay no, i'm you- well too thank you um i'm calling just because I don't think it's going to hinder anybody. I spend half of a year almost. My daughter goes to Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore, which is predominantly African-American, and they are truly African. They do not speak English. I see this racial profiling. It's really wrong. However, I don't think anybody in Baltimore or in my suburban, you know, Summers, Wisconsin neighborhood would be afraid to call the police, even if they got a fine just because we all try to keep each other safe. Red, green, brown, polka dot, we don't really care in my neighborhood. No matter what you look like in my neighborhood, if you park for 30 minutes and you anybody thinks anything suspicious, they're either going to call me or they will call the police. I will call the police. I'm the, one of the older people in my neighborhood, and... Okay, so here... You know, I, and I, I, and I appreciate... And see, and Jacqueline, that's what we want you to do, but bear with me. Let us... Let's say... You see something that you you think is suspicious. It's a it's a car that's been parked. You know. Uh, let me give you. An example. Okay, let's say you know one of your neighbors is on vacation. All right, 
and there's a mm-hmm. car, and you've had like burglaries in your neighborhood, for, and you you see this car that's just parked in front of your your neighbor's house, and it's got tinted windows, and you know there's a couple people in there, and it's it's been there for you know thirty, thirty five, forty minutes. You you don't know what the purpose of that is, but you're just it's a little bit suspicious. You want the cops to check it out. You call the police, and it turns out that it's it's nothing. It's this benign thing. Next thing you know, you get a lawsuit. You're publicly named and accused of discriminating against the people in the car based on their race. Your name is in the newspaper, your name is on TV, and you're looking at a judgment. You mean to tell me you don't think that's going to make people reluctant to make a call? Not if it's a true call. I've also lived in Miami where my neighbors cooked chickens under the ground, and it was not. It was against the law. I would have never called on them, ever. Right. It's their culture. But I do think that if someone has that much of a fear, if you, you know, then you should just be, you're wrong. You should see something, say something. Children are getting killed in school. People are robbed. How do you know that this woman, and no matter what color she was or what child or old person she had in the car, where do you think illegal drugs come from? Old people that don't take them, don't make enough money in Social Security, and they sell them to the drug dealers. Yeah. Well, thanks for call. I mean, again, I th- this was a th- th- this whole thing was was benign, and it was just kind of the 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 representative and her mother and her child had done nothing wrong. They were parked on a the street. They happened to be parked. You know, in in front of or right by the, this known drug house that the neighbors had been reporting. Neighbor sees the car park. Now the neighbor didn't go over and you know look in and see that it was an elderly woman. The neighbor just said, "Hey, there's this car. This happens all the time. Can you come and check it out?" I guess to me, I want, I want. The neighbors. I want people making the call to the police and then letting the police decide. Now, of course, you, you expect the police to check it out, to treat the people with um, with with respect. You know, hey, we're investigating this thing. And that's what happened in this case. Apparently, they, they came out. They asked a couple questions. They recognized that this wasn't a drug deal. And apparently, the drug dealers had moved out a day or two beforehand or whatever. And so everybody went on their way. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Now, do I understand that sometimes people might make that call because they, they use race as one of the factors? Sure, I concede that. But... But the, the alternative is, if you say we're going to sue, we're going to let people sue the people that make these calls, I continue to believe that what, once this gets out, people just aren't going to make calls anymore because they're going to be afraid that they're wrong. They're going to be afraid that their names are going to be public. They're going to be afraid that even though it's only a $250 fine or whatever, you're, you're going to be in court. You're going to have to hire a lawyer, and you're going to have to defend and explain that, you know, you weren't motivated by unlawfully discriminating against somebody. Your motivation was, I saw this. I thought it was suspicious. I think this would be really, really bad public policy. I don't think it's going to become law. But actually, one of our callers is right that this is something, this piece of legislation or something similar to this being introduced in other places around the country. I don't know that it's gaining traction, but I, I just, it, to me, if this passes, it's effectively the end of see something, say something. And I don't know that that's a good thing. Back with more in just a minute. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Hey, so Eric Bilstedt, yesterday, some people might say I had to check in my man card. Other people would say I get good husband points. Okay. All right, so here, here's the deal. <laughs> no, I, I, I understand it goes both ways. So I, I, you and I both worked yesterday. It was mm-hmm. it was a holiday, but we, we came in. We, yeah. we worked. So I, I, my wife and I like to go to movies, right? And so th- there's always this kind of give and take that goes on with, with movies, right? And sometimes she'll go to movies that she's not thrilled about going to because, you know, they're, they're guy movies or whatever. Sure, but she sure. goes. She accompanies me. And I, I do think kind of turnabout is, is fair play. So we, we go home and we're our, our schedule for like the next 10 days is just kind of like a nightmare with all these different things. But we had some time last night. So I said, do you want to go see a movie? And she said, well, okay, which, which one would we go see? And she had been telling me for a couple weeks that she wanted to go see Little Women. <laughs> okay, so I, I just, I had checked, and Little Women was playing, like, at the theater across the street from us at, like, 4.15. So I'm thinking, okay, well, got off at 3, got home, we could run over, we could see the movie, go mm-hmm. grab something quick to eat and get home at a decent hour. And, and I was looking at some of the other things that were there. I really want to see the World War One movie, 1917, yeah. but that's not... She would not enjoy that at all. She, I, I just know that's not her type of movie, and neither one of us is that jazzed about Star Wars, and we'd seen a couple of the other things. So I say we can go to Little Women. Now, she says, you don't want to go to see Little Women. I, and I said, but I, I, you're probably right, but, you know, okay, I know, but you want to see it, right? Well, yeah, I kind of do. Okay, let's. so we went and we saw Little Women. Two hours and 15 minutes. We, we, saw, we saw Little Women. Did so you cry? I, I did not cry, but of course okay. I knew how it turned. I mean, I, I I remember years and years ago I read the book read the Little book, Women, yeah, so I mean I, I I know how it ends, and it's it, it it was it was well done. The weirdest part of it, do you know who Bob Odenkirk is? Oh yeah, he, the guy that plays Better Saul, Call Saul. Better Call yeah. Saul. <laughs> they cast him as the father in Little. For people, Little Women is set like in post Civil War Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and it's a story of these four sisters growing up, and Dad is away at the Civil War, and Dad makes an appearance about midway through the show. Bob Odenkirk w- was the the father, <laughs> and it How was the, well, it was weird. I mean, I, I it was weird because I kept looking at it and thinking that's Saul. That's better <laughs> yeah. call Saul. What's he doing? You know, playing like a, right. a, a like a Union soldier returning from the war. I will say this: Laura Linney, who plays the mother, she she did a tremendous job. Okay. It it was a harmless movie. It, it was it, it was it was fine. I mean, it, it's clearly a chicks movie, but I you know I I, I went and I had a I had a big old beer. I had a twenty four ounce <laughs> cup of beer that I I drank while I was watching the excellent, movie, and I ate excellent. some popcorn. It was fine. But I mean, I think. You know, I I mean, yeah, you did kind of turn in your man card a little bit, but sometimes you have to do that, right? You get good husband points. That's a great idea. Yeah, you can cash in those chips another time, maybe. Absolutely. And, and of course, now, like I say, they let you drink beer in movie theaters, so okay. (laughs) It was was fine, and I had to get up and, you know, go pee for uh, in the middle of it, so I missed a couple minutes. But it's actually, if if you like that kind of thing, it's, it's a good movie. It's just... But good so for I'm, you. Ch- yeah, good for me. See, good. I get I get good husband points. So if you see my wife around out and about, say what a nice man you're married to. You know, he went and took you to Little Women. Yeah. Right. Uh, well next done. next we'll go see something something different. Okay, let me switch gears. I, matter of fact, um, I know Eric. You, I heard you mention this just as a drop earlier on this morning during Steve Scafidi's show. The whole story about Target Tory. Yes. Isn't that All amazing. Right. This is our this is our launching point, and my question to you is going to be: Does the guy have a point? Okay, so here's the deal. There's a 
a guy, his name is David Levitt, and he, he claims to be this like award-winning author. He claims to have, you know, had features on CBS and all these other different things. He goes into a Target store in Massachusetts, and I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm looking at what he sees. They've got a stack of Oral-B high-end electric toothbrushes that run for like they, they cost like 89 bucks okay and and there's a stack of them i'm looking at this behind the st- the oral b the the oral b toothbrushes um there's like a there's like a, a shelf a, a vertical shelf and the shelf says display on it and then it has 0.01 so it, like 1 cent it it's not it's not on the boxes of, of the Oral-Bs. It's not under the Oral-Bs. Like sometimes the Oral-B toothbrushes, a scent. It's just they, they've got these these toothbrushes stacked up against this kind of like vertical column that, that's really giving them support. And on the column, there's something that says display, and there's something that says 0.01, one cent. So the guy goes into the Target store, and he says, hey, this is an $89 Target toothbrush. I, I, I'm going to buy it for a cent. So he grabs it and he goes to the register. I said, I want it for a cent. And the manager, whose name is, is Tori, she says, no, no, sir. <laughs> it, it's, it's $89. We're not selling it to you for a cent. He says, no, no, no. This display says, says a cent. You have to sell me it for one cent. And she says, it's an $89 toothbrush. And, and they start going back and forth. So what the guy does is while they're having this discussion, he, takes a picture of her, then he calls the police, and he says, all right, he, he t- first he takes a picture of her, then he calls the police and says, I, 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 I need to document this because Target is advertising this, this toothbrush for a penny, and they're refusing to sell it to me, and I, I need to document that I've made this call because I'm, I'm going to sue them. Okay, fine. Then he takes to Twitter. And on his Twitter thing, he posts a picture of this woman, and again, her name is Tori, and he goes off on this this bizarre sort of rant. Um, Store manager Tori refused to sell me the toothbrush for the displayed uh, price. Police say I need to sue them, and they are making a verified report so I can take it to court. And then, you know, he, he rips... He rips her. He said, I wanted a good toothbrush. I was thrilled to see such an amazing price on an Oral-B. Target refused to honor it. And now I have to, you know, have to do this. Corporations like Target are not above the law. I have not been able to afford to go to a dentist in over three years. So, yes, I wanted a good toothbrush, was thrilled to see such an amazing price, et cetera, et cetera. Now I have to take him to court. And he posts this this picture of the, the woman, the, the manager, Tori, and he sends it out. And, of course, you get a lot of responses from people saying, oh, what a horrible person this woman is. And interestingly, you get a lot of other people who respond and essentially view the guy, David, as being this troll, and they start this GoFundMe campaign if they end up suing the woman, you know, and so far the GoFundMe campaign has raised $30,000. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I wouldn't have sold this toothbrush to this guy for a cent. 
I don't think they're under any legal obligation to sell it. I don't think they're under any moral obligation to sell it. And candidly, I think the guy is a creep and a jerk who, number one, for trying to get something he knows he is not entitled to. Number two, to claim that he was deceived, I think, is a lie. And number three, to drag this woman through, I don't know, Internet purgatory by calling her back out, I think is shameful. That's my take. Should Target have sold him the toothbrush for a a cent? And again, it's not like they advertised it for a cent. It's not like it's marked on the box for a cent. They've just got the toothbrushes stacked up in front of this column, and there's something that says one cent on the display. Do you think they were under any obligation to sell this guy a $90 toothbrush for one cent? And when they refused... Was he justified in calling out the manager? My answer would not only be no, but heck no. We're back to discuss in just a moment. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If anybody should be shamed here, in my opinion, it is the customer. The customer is not always right. What do you think? Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. This story is a classic example of why, as a general rule, I love people, but occasionally there are individual people that I just despise. And this would be one of those guys. You go into this store, it's a $90 toothbrush, and then you say, well, I, 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 it, it's in front of this thing that says like one cent on it. I mean, they didn't advertise the toothbrushes for a cent. So it's not like I came in here. It's not like I was lured in by an advertisement. The box isn't marked as a one penny. It's just, okay, they've stacked it up in front of this board that happens to say a cent in the back. Um, all it's doing is holding the boxes in place. Nobody. Nobody realistically expects that you should be able to sell a $90 toothbrush for one cent. And here you have a guy who, number one, demands that that happen. And by the way, I mean, here, here's a little free legal advice from a recovering lawyer. You, you have no right. Stores, unless there is fraud or misrepresentation along, around, you know, stuff gets And I'm not even sure I think that this was mislabeled. But even if it had been, stores reserve, unless you can prove that there was, again, some sort of deception that was involved here. Here, we're going to advertise this. We're going to bring people into the store. And, and then we're going to, you know, do some sort of bait and switch. As a general rule, unless you can prove that there was some sort of deception, misrepresentation, stores are not under an obligation when something is clearly mismarked. Stores aren't under an obligation to sell you that mispriced item. You know, that's just the, the reality of it. And the flip side is, you know, if you go to the register, for example, and, you know, you, uh, the item is supposed to be eight bucks and the scanner misreads it and charges you 28. Well, I mean, you, you shouldn't be expected to pay $28 for this. This is the flip side of that. And again, absent misrepresentation, this guy has, does not have, at least in my opinion, a leg to stand on when he says that because the stores just simply don't have to do it. But who in their right mind, thinks that they should be entitled to a $90 product for a penny and then thinks that it's okay to try to publicly humiliate the manager of the Target store when she says, I'm not going to sell you an $89 toothbrush for for a penny in this particular fashion. I mean, the guy, well, here's one of our texters, the guy is a complete and total 
I'm going to use the word jerk. That's not the word that Steve in Greenfield ends up using. Jeff, here's another text. What kind of jerk can afford to sue someone but claim they can't go to a dentist in three years and know the store had no obligation to sell it? Labeling mistakes happen all the time. I don't even think this was one of them. Yeah, I I agree. I don't even think that this is one of them. Jeff, This uh, to the extent it was a mix-up, it was an honest mistake. The guy should have just used common sense and not acted crazy. Um, he's the one that should be fined for calling the police under trivial circumstances. Absolutely. I understand we all want to hate big business and we all want to hate stores and we all want to say, oh, we're being ripped off in that. But, you know, can you imagine, okay, you're this you're this manager of this Target store and you're having to deal with some irate guy who thinks that he's the aggrieved person because you're not going to sell him a $90 toothbrush for one penny? Wow. I'm on the side of Target Tory in this particular case. Back with more in just a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Heavy side. Just just heavy side because it's stupid stuff like this. It is knucklehead stuff that absolutely drives me crazy. There is a Republican representative up in Rhinelander who is holding a bill hostage that would allow bars to stay open later during the Democratic National Convention. And he's doing the bidding of the Tavern League, and it is fundamentally wrong. All right, now let me let, let me review the bidding here. State law says, as a general rule, bars have to close at 2 a.m. Sunday through Thursday. And bars can stay, if you've got a Class B license, you have to close from 2 a.m. till 6 a.m. Monday through Friday, okay? And then 2.30 to 6 a.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. So that would mean... On, on like Friday, Friday night into Saturday morning and Saturday night into Sunday morning, you can stay open till 2.30. And other nights it has to be 2. Okay, fine. The Democratic National Convention is coming to Milwaukee in July. So you're going to have, what, what do they estimate? You're going to have, um, they estimate about 50,000 visitors who are going to descend on, into southeastern Wisconsin. They are going to be spending money on food and hotel rooms and things like that. A lot of these convention things, I don't know, that the activities might run till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, whatever. So there is a move afoot that has, I believe, bipartisan support, which says during the run-up to and the, the Democratic National Convention itself, what we're going to do is we're going to make exceptions to this law, and we're going to let the bars stay open till like four in the morning. So we're going to we're going to now candidly, if it were me, I'd let them stay open all night. But but that's not what we're arguing about. The ar- argument is to let them stay open instead of having to close at two. You have them close at four a.m. All right. You need legislation though, because it's a state law that regulates this. You need some legislation that allows that. That says okay for this special thing. We're going to keep the bars open till 4 a.m., all right? There, before this can be passed, though, 
what happens is it, it has to go through both the state senate and the state assembly. Now, that means it has to go through a committee um, in the state assembly. And the Republicans control you know, the, the state assembly overwhelmingly. What's happening, apparently, according to a report in the Business Journal, is that this, this bill that I think everybody would agree on, let, let's let the bars stay open till 4 in the morning during the Democratic National Convention, it's being held hostage because there is a Republican from Rhinelander. His name is Rob Swearingen, and he chairs the assembly committee that has to hear this, this thing first. And he's apparently saying that he's not going to entertain, he's not even going to look at this bill unless you also combine this with a separate law that the Wisconsin Tavern League wants, which would say these wedding barns, you know, you, you've got the, you know, there, there's this thing in Wisconsin where, you know, people will rent out wedding barns and things like that, barns for weddings and things like that, and then bring their own alcohol, bring their own liquor to it, their own wine, whatever, their own champagne. The Tavern League doesn't like it because they don't like the competition. They want the law changed so that wedding barns would have to attain liquor licenses. Right. This is not a very popular bill, at least outside of the Tavern League. But but it's a bill that the Tavern League is trying to push. So now you've got this state representative who's apparently saying, unless we put this wedding barn bill in with this, let's let the bars stay open till 4 a.m. during the DNC bill, nothing's going to get considered. And now they're, they're kind of starting to you know run out of of time. Because you, you've got to get this done in time for, uh, again, the July, the, the, the July convention. And there, there is a little bit of, I mean, under discussion as to how far do you, do you change the state law? Do you change this law for the whole state? Do you change it from, you know, uh, you know, certain counties where the delegates are going to be concentrated? You know, th- that's something that's up uh, to discussion. But the bottom line is, it's now apparently being held hostage by a Republican state assembly person who wants to figure out a way to get this bill that there's probably not enough support for otherwise to get it through um, to make the Tavern League happy. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, let, let's let's kind of break this down. I don't think there is any reason in God's green earth that we shouldn't amend the law to allow the bars during the Democratic National Convention and the run-up to it. I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't allow them to stay open till 4 o'clock in the morning. Let's start with that premise. If that premise is correct, why doesn't the legislature just get off its butt and do that so all the restaurant owners and all the bar owners and everybody can make a little bit of money when these conventioneers come in? Let's start with the first question. Should we... During the DNC, should we allow bars, restaurants to serve alcohol until 4 o'clock in the morning? My answer is, of course we should. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, if, if we all agree that that's a good idea and it makes sense for you know whatever the DNC is and the run-up to it, then why in the world would we block it? 
It's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. Is there any reason at all not to allow bars to stay open till 4 a.m. when you've got 50,000 conventioneers coming into the area? We discuss in just a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is going to be an interesting conversation. If you're just tuning in, here, here's the deal. State law says that bars have to close 2 a.m. most nights, and then Friday into Saturday and Saturday into Sunday, you can stay open until 2.30. There is a bill with bipartisan support which would amend those rules, that law, during the Democratic National Convention. You have 50,000 people coming into the area. It would allow bars to stay open until 4 o'clock in the morning. All right, I, I think I don't have any problem with that at all. Matter of fact, and I... I'd, I'd allow bars to, if it was up to me, I'd allow bars to stay subject to local review. I'd allow them to stay open all night, and most are going to close anyways, but but that's just me. So anyhow, this bill is apparently being held hostage by a Republican state representative from the Rhinelander area who wants to combine this bill that I think has broad support with his bill which would is pushed by the Tavern League, which would require these wedding barns to get liquor licenses. Uh, the two, to me, are completely and totally different. But the bigger point is, at least in the short run, I have no trouble during the Democratic National Convention, when you got 50,000 people coming here, allowing the bars to stay open. Let's let... Let's let the innkeepers, let's let the tavern owners, let's let them make a little bit of extra money when you've got all these people that are coming into town. All right, 855-616-1620. Jeff, the law that needs to be changed is the one that concentrates so much power in one representative. Well, that's kind of the way it is. Jeff, there is no way we should allow Democratic Party attendees to drink all night. It's a recipe for disaster. (sighs) Okay, it's... It's a convention. Jeff, I say no. Why not stay open late for the Harley reunion and other events? If that was the case, I would say yes. Well, again, if it were up to me, I, I'd I'd give bars the discretion to do that. But in this particular case, I just see no reason why you would why you would require the bars to close at 2 o'clock in the morning when you have all these different conventioneers, the vast majority of whom aren't driving. You're going to have all sorts of police out on the road. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to attract these big conventions. Part of that is the socializing. It's the partying. We're bringing all these people in here because they want to spend money. And is it really so bad if you give them an extra couple hours that they could stay out? Jeff, if we're going to let the Democrat delegates drink all night, are we going to do the same thing next time Harley Davidson has an anniversary celebration and the bikers come to town? Well, I, I wouldn't be opposed to that either. Um, Jeff, doesn't this go against your premise that nothing good happens after 2 a.m.? You need to look at the big picture here. It's not just the people coming in from the convention. It's also the Wisconsinites utilizing the additional time to drink and potentially cause issues. Okay, again, we're only talking about you know a limited period of time, a limited window of time, and it's being done in recognition of the fact that you have tens of thousands of people coming here for this convention. And my guess is in most of the places where you've had these conventions in the past, you've had similar laws. Jeff, keep the bars open, increase law enforcement, OWI checkpoints, etc. No problem 
with that at all. But let's, I mean, let's understand what the, the, you know, the bottom line of this is. You know, you have people who are coming in for a convention. We are trying to bring in major conventions. And, you know, this, this might be something that makes it a little more appealing, especially given the fact that you're going to have these convention sessions that could run very, very long. What, what's, what's the downside of allowing the hotel bars to stay open till four o'clock in the morning? Especially if you get delegates that roll back in. Some of these delegates, they go to the events. They're going to have to travel back to their hotels. They might not get back to their hotels till midnight or 1230 or one. What's the purpose in requiring, again, that, okay, you, we're going to shut off the alcohol spigot at 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, I understand there's people, and I, I, I'm the guy that says, Wagner's rule of life, nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, maybe there's some asterisks here. They're not talking about being outside a strip club. They're talking about, I mean, in most cases, like being in hotel bars. Jeff, um, of course we should change the law. And if this representative holds this hostage, he'll be making the bars he's supposed to protect lose money. Well, th- that's the that's the reality as well, because if I were a tavern owner, a bar owner, a restaurant owner with a bar, and I was in southeastern Wisconsin or anywhere around this area, I'd be saying to the Republican state representative and the tavern league, what are you guys doing? You know, why Why are you mixing these two particular issues? Now, if we want to have a debate on the merits about whether or not the bar should be allowed to stay open an extra two hours during this thing, okay, that, that's fine. But to mix these up, because you would think that the Tavern League would be supporting this legislation, this change, because it's the members of the Tavern League who are going to benefit because they're going to be the ones that are going to be allowed to sell um sell beer or sell wine or sell mixed drinks um extra and and that's that's kind of the bottom line jeff i've never met you but i love the way you think that said i think you've lost your mind on this one this is a big no from me i just don't understand again what the no reason would be why you would say no. Look, if you go to conventions in some of the big convention cities, they don't have rules like this. You know, so if, if we're going to be trying to compete with the Las Vegases and the New Orleans and the things like that, uh, the places like that, you have to recognize that one of the things that conventioneers like to do is they like to have fun and they like to go out and they like to, and they like to party. Now you might say, well, gosh, I, if, you know, if, if you can't get enough to drink by two o'clock in the morning, well, that's too bad. You should be home. And I, I get it. There, there's an argument about this but this isn't the reality you got these political operatives that are coming here they want to spend their money there are going to be a lot of people bunched up why wouldn't we let them spend their money that to me is is the thing jeff uh, the people who object to this is that they can't separate politics from common sense maybe and i i I mean if this were republicans would we feel differently no i'm going to be consistent in this particular thing to me this again it, it just makes eminent sense we're trying to host an enormous convention 
there's going to be all these people that are coming in here, change the law for the week, you know, of the convention, maybe the three or four days before the convention's actually supposed to start because you got these people coming in. You're going to generate a lot more money. You're not going to have any major problems, let's be honest. And if you're holding this hostage because, I don't know, you want wedding barns to start to have to get liquor licenses, that's just nuts. And to the point that one of the texters made, it's hurting if, if you're trying to do stuff to help the Tavern League, you're hurting the bar owners because you're going to be depriving them of the extra revenue they're going to be getting. So for people who say we don't criticize Republicans, this is a Republican who's holding this hostage. And this is one where Assembly Speaker Robin Voss needs to get involved and needs to say we're separating these things. Let's get this through or at least debate it on the merits. I mean, again, if you want to argue that we shouldn't extend the hours, okay, let's have that argument. But let's not tie in these two completely unrelated things. That's my take. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Well, the impeachment proceedings have started. Uh, it, the, the end of the end result of this is going to be you know, no no different. It's pretty much predetermined. But uh, Senate Republicans have backed down from a more aggressive timetable. It's just going to get us. It's going to take us a little bit longer to get to what the result is going to be. Um, the original proposal that I, I admit I thought was was extreme was originally giving each side. 24 hours to, to speak. Now, this is like the opening statements, etc. 24 hours aside. And it was originally supposed to be 24 hours, um, and you have it over two days. Each side would have 24 hours. So the whole process of making the arguments um, would be 48 hours over a four-day period of time, 12 hours a, a day. And that's... I I, th- I mean I think a lot of the senators were probably thinking oh that that's a that's a long thing so what they've done is they've just changed the rules so now they're going to give each side twenty four hours to speak this is to start it out it's it's the arguments and the presentation of of evidence twenty four hours to speak and each side's going to have three days so this will have the effect of if both sides were to use all their time. It would have the ex- effect of of extending the trial at least for a- another two days. So, uh, this means that we're not going to finish the first phase of the impeachment hearings probably until early next week. After that, it becomes a little bit again. It's still up in the air as to what's going to happen. The Democrats want the ability to call extra witnesses who weren't called before the House. Republicans. I don't think are going to go along with that, um, but 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 who knows? But in any event, I, it, the trial is now going to last a couple extra days. I don't think it's going to change the dynamics. It just kind of changes how we get there. Let's understand what's going on here. The Democrats want to carry this out and extend this as long as possible because they think that the the press that the president is getting is bad. They think they're winning the public relations war. I'm not sure about that at all. Matter of fact, we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But they think that they're winning. The longer they keep this impeachment thing going, the more um, momentum 
they are going to get. Again, I, I don't know that I think that that's really the case. As a matter of fact, I think the opposite might be the case. But that's the political calculus, and that's the developments today. The the arguments extended for a couple of days. So we, we don't finish phase one of the impeachment proceeding until the early part of next week. All right. Minneapolis has a new ordinance, which I think makes no sense at all. But I want to discuss it with you. There are people out there who believe that plastic bags are filling up landfills and clogging the oceans and who believe that, you know, plastic bags are the bane of modern existence. Minneapolis, effective January 1st, passed an ordinance, and the ordinance says, for all intents and purposes, and there's a, there's a couple exceptions, but generally speaking, a business, you're allowed to give a customer either a plastic bag or a paper bag. You can still say, would you like paper or plastic? But the ordinance says you have to charge the customer a nickel for that paper bag or for the plastic bag. You've got to charge them five cents. The idea behind this, and it's not a tax, money doesn't go to the government, the ordinance says the retailer has to charge them that money, and the retailer gets to keep the, the money. So, it's, again, it's not, it's not a tax. But the idea is by charging people a nickel for a plastic bag or a paper bag, and again, it, and it's per bag. So if you're going shopping and you know you have six bags of groceries, five times six would be thirty cents. The argument is by charging people a nickel for a bag, that is going to deter the use of bags. Maybe cause more people to go and, and bring their own reusable bags or, or whatever. Our number is eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now I, I wanted to find what I want to talk about here. I don't want to have the argument that we've had in the past about whether or not we should ban plastic bags or we should ban paper bags. I want to talk about this ordinance. My question is this. Is, is If you were to be charged a nickel a bag, paper or plastic, doesn't matter, is that enough of a charge that's going to change your behavior at all? So like I say, you, you go shopping and you fill five bags of groceries Saturday. It costs you an extra quarter if you want to use the store's bags. Right? Is a nickel a bag going to change one person's behavior? And my answer would be I, I no. I mean, to me, this is one of these sort of feel-good, silly pieces of legislation. If you decide you want to outlaw paper bags, okay, go ahead, or plastic bags, go ahead and outlaw them. If you decide you really want to try to change behavior, put on a, a tax of a dollar or $2 per bag or something like that. But charging a nickel for a bag, would that change your behavior at all? And, and my answer is I, I can't imagine how that would. But I want to discuss, will this ordinance do anything to discourage people from using paper or plastic bags? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, I just, 
I mean, think about your own shopping behavior. Now, I'm, I'm, look, I understand there's some people who love the reusable bags. There's some people who go with paper instead of plastic. All right, that, that's, that's an individual decision. I just don't see how charging somebody a nickel for a bag is going to change behavior at all. Am I missing something? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Gru is lining up the calls. Back with more in just a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Rob from Illinois. Hi, Rob. Hi. How's things going today? Things are going well. Twenty-seven degrees. The sun is shining. God's in His heaven. All's right with the world. What do you think? Will, will yeah, a nickel bag this change? This is not terrible for January. Yeah, not at all. So, will a nickel okay. tax? Will so, a nickel fee chart change anybody's habits? Well, the. the comment I wanted to make is I've been shopping in Woodstock, Illinois, and they implemented a $0.10 a bag fee, and that has been changing people's habits. Uh, Many, many people do not take the bags. They'll either try to carry an armload of junk or they'll bring their own bags. And to some extent, it also makes you think, Maybe I'll shop at a different dollar. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks. Now, again, that this is a local ordinance. That is going to be the interesting thing. Would people, would it cause people to change their behavior? Would it cause you to go to one of the suburbs? I guess I just, I go back to the basic premise. If you want to use government policy to try to change behaviors, right, that, that, that can that can have a role. I mean, I, I think if you start to look at cigarettes, you know, we've started to try to tax cigarettes out of existence by putting in some of these really onerous, you know, taxes on cigarettes. And I think what's happened is some people have decided, well, I, I just I can't afford this anymore. I, that, that's fine if you want to do it. I'm just not sure a, a nickel a bag is going to be the case. Now, I'm getting a number of texts who are pointing out that, well, you know, keep in mind that that's the Aldi's business model. And it does, you know, that you have to pay for the bags. And what's happened is it, it has motivated some people who shop at Aldi's to bring their own bags. And that's all well and good, except my my guess is I think maybe the people that are shopping at Aldi's, it, it's for a variety of reasons, not necessarily related to the bags. Here's a text, Jeff. It would definitely change my behavior in terms of me wanting to bag my own groceries. I'm tired of today's baggers nowadays putting my items in double plastic bags, only two to three items per bag. I come home with a pile of plastic. Plastic bags that are such a waste. I, by the way, typically I like the paper bags because I'm able to reuse them in most cases. Bill and Fond du Lac. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. Thanks for talking to me. Sure. I think it'll work. I mean, I'm one of those guys that drives across town to save two cents a gallon of gas, and it ends up being a quarter. <laughs> so, you know, because, and I know a lot of people that do that. Okay. So I think it'll work. Okay. Well, so let me ask you this, Bill. Do you? Do you I mean, do you? Do you take your own bags into places now? Sometimes. Okay. Once in a while. Well, but not often, right? Right. No. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. I'm, okay. So, and, and why? Why don't you? Because it's just would I be too much of a hassle to to lug your own bags around and things like that? Is that pretty much it? Yeah, that's it. I mean, if you're only going to get one bag of groceries, I would never 
never bring my own bag. But, you know, if you're really going grocery shopping and you're going to get five, six bags worth, that's mm-hmm. so I know it's 30 cents, but I drive across town to save two cents <laughs> a gallon, which amounts to a quarter. Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. Even though it might, you, even though you might blow a quarter in gas to get there, you're still saving right, that couple exactly. cents, right? <laughs> okay, That's the way it is. They, they, Bill, Bill, you got to sit down with. And, and that, I, by the way, I, I know people like that, Bill. I, I, my kind of philosophy is, is life is too short for for that type of stuff. But, and, and I'm sure. I, I don't know. I, I just there, there, and I respect that there might be some people that are out there. And I look. I also get the fact that there are, there are folks who, for reasons, it's it's not the economics of it. It's because hey, I want to be I I, I want to cut down my carbon footprint and I want to use less plastic and I don't want to have to deal with all that stuff. And I respect it. And I'm not criticizing that type of thing. I'm just saying. You know, a, a nickel, a bag isn't going to be enough, I don't think, to change people's behavior. And again, I, I know I know they charge at Aldi's, but that's kind of the Aldi's deal that, that's out there. And it's kind of what you have to buy into if you're going to go shopping at Aldi's. Mike on the northwest side. Hi, Mike. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? My, my thoughts are a nickel, a bag isn't going to, you know, bust me, so I, I really don't care. But you can still buy a bag of hefty bags, you know, at the, in the aisle. And use those at home, too. But, I mean, if you bring your own bag, I was in Slovakia and uh, a couple of years ago, and they charged stuff for bags over there back then and, like, five, six years ago. Yeah. And the lady there talked me into double bagging stuff. <laughs> you need an extra bag. Well, right. right. I mean, th- thanks for calling, Mike. You know, and so that is the interesting thing. One of the ways that they did this, and it was kind of clever to get the retailers to buy into this, was it, it's not a tax. In a lot of communities, you have to pay like a usage tax that goes to the government. In, in Minneapolis, that's not how it works. The, the retailers are obligated by law to collect the money, but they get to keep the money. And, and my guess is, just be my guess, but my guess is that you, there on, on some of these plastic bags, you charge five cents. My, my guess is that the bag itself probably costs like a, a half a cent, maybe not even that much. So there, there is kind of a profit incentive. Here, one of our texters makes the point. Jeff, I think most people can afford a nickel bag these days. Then he smiles and says, sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah, that's a throwback to the drug culture of the 60s. Jeff, the only plastic bags I like and are worth anything are the red plastic bags from Sendix. Otherwise, it's paper and plastic because they, they tend to fall apart. Again, I think I think you have to have a debate about, you know, what, what's the what's the bottom line of all this? Are, are we at a point in this country where the 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 production of, for example, the little thin plastic bags, is that such an environmental hazard that we need to figure out, we just need to come together collectively and say we're not going to do this anymore. Now, I, I, I personally don't think we're at that point, but but that's a discussion to be had. I think these ideas of kind of Mickey Mousing around on it, and let's make ourselves feel good, and let's charge a nickel uh, because then we can feel good and we can pat ourselves on the back. Because while I do appreciate a couple texts and our caller, Bill, who drives across town to save two cents per gallon on, on gasoline, I, again, I, I think most people aren't going to say, well, gee, they're going to charge me. I'm going to have two bags of groceries. They're going to charge me 10 extra cents for that. So all of a sudden, now I'm going to bring my bags from, from home or I'm going to buy one of those you know, recyclable bags and I'm going to use it over and over again. I don't think a nickel is enough to change people's behavior. If you want to change people's behavior, make it a buck. 
make it five bucks, make it whatever, or just outlaw the things entirely. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.